The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of July 17th. 2017. On this week's show, we'll be joined by ESPN's Howard Bryant to discuss Roger Federer's eighth Wimbledon title, as well as Venus Williams's near miss at the All England Club. Sam Miller of ESPN will also be here to assess the record-setting baseball-mashing prowess of rookies Cody Bellinger of the Los Angeles Dodgers and Aaron Judge of the New York Yankees and Rose Eveleth of ESPN's shiny new 30 for 30 podcast series will come on the show to talk about women walking to the North Pole and a multi-million dollar Baccarat heist. You might wonder why everyone on this week's show is from ESPN. The answer is I have no idea, but maybe I work for ESPN now. I don't know. If I start getting checks from Bristol, I'll let you know, and also I'll be sure to deposit them before they recognize their error. Uh, my co-pilot, Stefan Fatsis, is out again this week. Filling in for him is Jody Avergan, who is the host and producer of political podcasts for ESPN's 538 and is also the impresario of ESPN's aforementioned audio documentary venture 30 for 30 podcasts, which we'll be talking about later in the show. Hello, Jody. Josh, thanks for having me. And I was under the impression that segments were going to be Ultimate Frisbee, more Ultimate Frisbee, and then 30 for 30. <laughs> Only when Pesca is here do we talk about Ultimate so he can ask his question about when a dog, dog is placed yes. on a roster. Oh, trust me. Will that be the— We Ultimate Frisbee players noted that every time he would make that joke. And what a joke oh, it yeah. was. Um, I, feel, I feel very relaxed, Jody, because um, having another experienced podcast host here, if I lose consciousness, mm -hmm. I know that the show will continue with no interruptions, but just please— uh, if I do lose consciousness, do not uh, eat my carcass or anything. Just let me let me rest peacefully. I will keep things going as you um, lie serenely in the corner. On Sunday afternoon in England, Roger Federer beat Marin Cilic 6-3-6-1-6-4 to win his all-time record eighth Wimbledon men's singles title and 19th Grand Slam overall, extending his lead to four over Rafael Nadal, who just won his 15th at the French Open. Serena Williams, by the way, has 23. The almost 36-year-old Federer, who beat Nadal in five sets to win the Australian Open earlier this year, is now the oldest man by five years to win Wimbledon, and he didn't lose a single set in the tournament the first time that had been done at the All England Club since Bjorn Borg pulled it off in 1976. Joining us now to discuss is Howard Bryant, who writes about and talks about tennis for ESPN. Welcome back to the podcast, Howard. Thank you. Good to be back. One could argue that even at 35 and 11 months, Federer is playing at or near the highest level he's ever played. Uh, but to evaluate a claim like that, you need competition. And there wasn't much of that at Wimbledon for Federer. <laughs> um, Murray and Djokovic are both in a diminished physical state, perhaps a diminished mental, mental state in Djokovic's case, too. And they each lost before they could face Federer. Nadal is playing really well at age 31, but he lost uh, in the fourth round to Gilles Muller of Luxembourg. Federer absolutely steamrolled his younger challengers, Grigor Dimitrov and Milos Raonic. He fought off uh, Tomas Burdich in the semis, and then he crushed Chilich, who had a blister on his left foot that left him unable to move uh, well enough to challenge Federer in the slightest. So what can we say about Federer? after two weeks where he looked about as troubled as he does filming a Rolex commercial. Yeah, well, I, I think that the first thing is, is that 
you got to play who's in front of you. That's the very first thing. And the things that Roger can control, anybody who plays tennis, especially tennis, these these one-on-one sports where you're not necessarily dealing with standings and everything else is you have to control your side of the net. And Roger Federer, after coming back from injury last year, has controlled his side of the net better than anybody else in the game right now. And I think that one thing during this fortnight that really hit me, one, he was the favorite coming in. That was no question. But once again, there was that Federer aura, and we can talk about a lot of different things about Federer as we go on, but one of the things that really struck me, of course, was wanting to see him play somebody who didn't fear him. The, the Roger Federer aura is more pronounced than any other player on tour and has been for years where there are certain players... They may get beaten by Nadal because Nadal can wear them down. They may get beaten by Djokovic. But Roger mentally destroys a lot of these players. I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about kind of Federer in this later stage of his career, whether he's still kind of playing and dominant in the same way that he has been all along. I mean, it seems like his strengths are still the strengths that have been his strengths all along, you know, footwork and his forehand and his serve. But like in other sports, you see older players maybe adapt their game a little bit more, you know, in the NBA, like. You have yep. Jordan get yep. a fadeaway jumper, and Kobe did the same thing. Is Federer adapting his game at all to be this good, this this old? Well, he's done a couple of things that are really key. One is that he's been good about taking rest. Yeah. I think the rest part was very big for him. I remember talking to Roger, and believe me, there's one. I I, I really enjoy interviewing Roger Federer, even though he's very much imperious and can be dismissive and everything. But Roger is very old school as well in that he does have a historical perspective. He does like to take the long view. The biggest thing with Roger had been his health. And when he lost to Tommy Robredo back at the at the at the US Open a few years ago and then he lost to Chilich in 2014, you could tell he wasn't moving very well. And then there's of course that curmudgeonly stubborn Roger that wouldn't change rackets. And he was using a 90-inch racket when everybody else uses a 100-inch racket. And, and that extra space when he finally changed rackets, now he's hitting over his backhand. And now he's, instead of slicing everything back like he did against Nadal, which would always give Nadal the advantage on points when he would go to the, through the backhand, now Roger is flattening out the backhand and hitting the ball deep and putting Nadal on the defensive. So what you're seeing with Roger is, one, you're seeing health. And, and, and he's a genius and he's lucky in that gene pool that he never seems to get, to, to get hurt. Um, the way that other players do, even though he finally started to have some some injuries. But the thing with Roger is now he seems to have mastered the parts of his game that the other players, especially Djokovic and Nadal, picked on. And now he really is playing as if he has no weaknesses. The thing that's fascinating to me is that great champions are so often stubborn, and that's what makes them great. And Federer was criticized, especially in his losses to Nadal, for not changing up tactics for so many years, for not hitting over the backhand. But how could you criticize Roger Federer, who'd won more grand slams than anyone had ever won? Now the new narrative is if if Roger had gone to the 100-inch racket a few years ago, he'd have 22 majors. And so that stubbornness helps you, and it also hurts you. But you're right. How do you criticize? I think (laughs) Roger would always say, well, 
I think the way I'm doing it now has been pretty successful, so who's going to tell me to change? But there is something else about Roger that is as stubborn as he is. If you notice, he's also willing to change coaches every few years, and so he is right. constantly searching for for new strategies and new tactics and new voices. And if you notice, Nadal this year finally brought in a new voice, and look at what has happened to his game. So I think, on the one hand, Roger is very much serious and stubborn about what Roger Federer does well, but he's also very open to hearing new voices in his And camp. isn't this idea of taking rest also a sign that he's kind of willing to adjust? I don't know. I just felt like in general, I heard a lot more talk this year about <laughs> players stra- strategically resting. We're used to hearing that in the NBA, for instance, where everyone rests until the playoffs. Sure. Uh, is that a new trend now that players are like take actively taking time off to pick their shots, so to speak? Well, the schedule beats you to death, and I think that Roger is also – I think Roger and Serena are very much in the same boat with one exception. I honestly don't believe Serena Williams cares about being number one anymore. I think Serena is in major mode. I think Serena will play – if you if you if you notice the last couple of years she played seven tournaments last year and and still made the finals three times. And so I I think that when you're looking at how these great players in their mid-30s manage their schedules – at Roger's level and at Serena's level, at Rafa's level, you've got to decide what you care about. And I think that Roger, I think he still cares about that number one ranking. I think he would love to get that number one ranking again. And so I think that the rest that he took through the clay court season was good for him. He also knows his body. He knows as talking to somebody who has had a reconstructive knee surgery, I can tell you when you do not feel comfortable about the ground under you, you re- really don't think you can play. And and Roger at his level coming off of a surgery did not feel like the clay was good for him. I do not believe the the notion that, oh, well, he knew that Rafa was going to win and therefore just ducked the clay season. I don't buy that at all. Before we move on to Venus Williams, just one last quick comment on Federer is that there's this central paradox to him is that, and I would put myself in this category, we love him because of the effortlessness with which he dispatches his his uh, opponents, but there was something that wasn't particularly fun or joyful about watching him um, at this Wimbledon because there just wasn't the challenge like there was in the five-setter against Rafa at Australia. Like we want the effortlessness to be a little bit more effortful than it was um, in England the last I couple I mean, do you weeks. think that diminishes well, no, his no. accomplishment? I'm... No, I don't uh, think it diminishes his accomplishment. I just think that as a fan, it's just like – the final against Chilich was just more sad than it was. Like well, Chilich was crying. Well, <laughs> Chilich was crying, and 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 Roger, when he won, even he didn't look all that jazzed about it. I think he knew he wasn't that challenged. He sort of looked relieved, like, "Oh, hey, I get another one." But also, like, well, there wasn't a whole lot to this one. This is one of the reasons why, and I know I'm an objective journalist in the whole thing, and I buy into that because it's true. But this is the reason why I continually go back and say this is the reason why I owe Rafa Nadal a huge debt of gratitude. I was a huge tennis fan in the 80s. I was a big Lendl guy. I loved the Lendl-McEnroe rivalry. I loved all of that. I loved when when Connors was in the mix as well. And I lost my way with tennis because I was not a Sampras guy. I, I didn't feel like the game was as competitive. I didn't really enjoy it. Roger Federer reminded me of Michael Jordan and Tiger Woods during that early period in the 2000s where he was just too good. It was like, okay, I don't find him being I, – I don't like monarchies. I like rivalries. Give me Celtics-Lakers over the Jordan Bulls any day of the week. And when Rafa showed up, now we were on to something. 
And and I and I think you're right. When you're watching Roger go unchallenged, obviously there's a beauty in his game. But I want to see a match. Give me somebody who is going to go toe-to-toe with Roger. Give me somebody that's going to make Roger think, that's going to make Roger blink, make Roger worry about his backhand like Djokovic used to, make him worry about covering the forehand as Rafa does. Let's move on to Venus Williams, who made her second Grand Slam final of the year uh, at age 37. She lost to her sister in Australia. Um, at Wimbledon, she felt uh, Garbina Muguruza of Spain, seven five six zero. Howard, uh, what did you make of her performance? I thought that Venus was terrific. I thought that Venus has done something that I didn't think was possible a couple of years ago, which was to to have this sort of resurgence. I was talking with her people because we were, it was starting to look like she was nearing the end, and we were talking at ESPN about doing some big Venus blood, and even her, her own handlers were talking about, yeah, well, Venus wants to do this and go out the right way. So I think there was some sort of recognition that maybe this was it. And then all of a sudden she got into the top 10 and all of a sudden she started to play at a Venus level that we hadn't seen since 2009, 2008, 2009. And now she's in the mix. And I think that we always talk about the Rafa void, about how much that draw changes when Nadal's not part of it. There's also a Serena void now. And I think it has given venus a fair amount of energy and that hey there's nobody here that's that good there's nobody here that can beat me that i feel overmatched against and i think you're starting to see a little bit more margin on her serve she makes way too many mistakes but the double faults in the second serve she's vulnerable there but she played an attacking style this whole year where she is putting opponents on the defensive and she's starting to really assume the court in a way that she hadn't before. This seems like it's a very tennis thing to have this like late career resurgence. I mean, it has happened on on the men's side and the and the women's side. Players disappear for not disappear, but players you know drop back for four or five years and then come back in their late thirties and then make these epic runs. Like, wh- why is that? Do players just is, need that time off and then they're just still quite good at thirty seven? Then they can come back and maybe a little less injured and make a final push. I mean, why does this sort of seem to happen a lot? Well, I've been saying this about other sports, and I've never really thought about it in terms of tennis until you brought this question up. But in the other sports, I've said that it's harder it's harder than ever to be a great player. And part of the reason why is because of the money and the fame. Today, you can be compensated like a legend. You can receive the accolades of a legend. You can receive the exposure and the endorsements of a legend without being a legend. So therefore, where is your motivation to be a really, truly great player, to put in that extra work, to be that person who we all talk about? Where is that going to come from if you're already being treated like you've made it? In the old days, whether you're talking about Chrissy or Martina or Lendl or McEnroe, you had to win to make Mm. money. You had to be, it it was like having three networks. You know how famous you had to be to be on one of those three networks? Whereas today, you can be famous and no one knows who the hell you are. Because of all the exposure and the channels and everything that's out there, it's a very changed landscape. So today, I think that if you're a, a, a young athlete, if you're Jeannie Bouchard and you get onto the and you you hit the scene and you make the Wimbledon final, even though you don't win, and all of a sudden now you're a, you're a household name in your circles, and maybe you think you've made it when you really haven't, and there's a level there that's got to come from you, and I wonder 
I think it shows once again the the the, the freakish nature of the Serenas and the Federas and the Nadals, and how truly great they want to be. That their anchor is not necessarily fame and money; it's to kill you. All right, Howard. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. Howard Bryant uh, talks about tennis and writes about it for ESPN. Appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Before we get to Cody Bellinger and Aaron Judge, I'd like to let you know that in this week's bonus segment for Slate Plus members, I'm going to continue my interrogation of Jody vis-a-vis 30 for 30 podcasts and the future of this very medium. If you want to hear that, please join Slate Plus for the new low price of just $35 a year or $5 a month. And you can become the proud owner of your very own Slate tote bag, plus get bonus segments on this and other Slate podcasts every week. Sign up at slate.com slash plus. Oh, my God. Okay. Oh, That's a big right here. Oh, my God. Oh. Oh. Well, oh, my God. Okay. Wait a minute. If it hits the roof, it doesn't count. Oh, oh wow. I don't know what to say. I mean, I, <laughs> what do you say after those balls? He hit two over five. That was the sound of New York Yankees rookie Aaron Judge hitting the ball very far at Major League Baseball's home run derby in Miami last week. Judge, who won the competition by hitting a total of 47 homers, beat the likes of Dodgers rookie Cody Bellinger along the way. In fact, that was Bellinger in the clip you just heard, marveling at the 500-foot blasts that had just flown off of Judge's bat. While the 25-year-old, six foot seven, 280-pound Judge leads the majors in home runs with 30, Bellinger isn't that far behind with 26, and he's done it in 50 fewer at-bats. He also hit for the cycle on Saturday, becoming the first Dodgers rookie ever to hit a single, double, triple, and homer in the same game. Joining us now to talk about these guys is Sam Miller, who writes about baseball for ESPN and is also the author, along with Ben Lindbergh, of The Only Rule Is It Has to Work, our wild experiment building a new kind of baseball team. Still promoting your book, Sam. How's it going? It's good. How are you? It's It's in paperback. It's in paperback. It's a really good book. I would encourage everyone to read it. Thank you, Jody. We all love Sam's book. Um, I really liked your piece (laughs) um, recently, Sam, on Cody Bellinger about the chances that he would hit uh, 763 home runs, setting the major league record, which um, the larger point you were making um, is that at the beginning of a player's career, the like, this guy could be Jeff Francoeur, translation, bad. Or he could be Barry Bonds. And that's the really fun thing about baseball. You can talk about that at the beginning of the season where any particular team could go to the World Series or finish in the cellar. And so like looking at both of these guys, let's start with Bellinger. Just what he could become is just the the difference is just so vast. And it's fascinating to think about the possibilities. It is. And I remember in uh, 2012, uh, just by chance uh we were doing a uh like a at espn the magazine we were doing a four article uh sort of issue on aging in baseball and so everybody was covering a player of a different age and at 
toward the beginning of the year before Mike Trout had become Mike Trout, I was assigned to write about Mike Trout and being 20 in Major League Baseball. And uh, one of the things that um, really stuck with me as I followed him throughout that season was how many people didn't want to acknowledge how great he was. And in particular, there was this moment with Ron Washington, the Rangers manager, where um, he was sort of like chastising me for bringing up, I don't know, Willie Mays or something like that. And this was in like August, I think, and he had the best rookie season of all time. And it's totally normal to say, well, uh, you know, baseball is a game of swings and this might be the best three month period of his career. And uh, who knows what will happen next? But I think that it sometimes causes us to overlook the greatness that is right in front of us that's happening right now. And what Bellinger and Judge are both doing uh, is is just incredibly great right now. And I, I feel like whether there is a regression coming or not, uh, we should kind of appreciate that this is like both unprecedented uh, and could potentially be, uh, I think especially with in the case of Bellinger, could potentially be potentially probably won't be but could potentially be uh the start of like a career that in a hundred years we still remember in the bellinger piece in particular you walk through a bunch of projection models and talk about all the different paths that that his career could take but there was um i'm Reading your piece, I, w- I was curious whether projection models for someone's, you know, full span of their career can take into account kind of more intangible things. Cause there's a line in your piece where you say, at 21 years old, with every imaginable landmine between him and retirement, Bellinger's average career is already as good as Don Mattingly's or Dale Strawberry's, which I don't know about that, but I, but the, but also I don't know which exact pro- projection you were talking about there, but like, that phrase, when you say every imaginable landmine, are, are, do projections somehow take into account every imaginable landmine a young player could face along their career? So we used um, Dan Simborski's uh, Zips model, which is uh, you know one of the sort of more famous baseball projection models. And that's a fairly, I would say it's a fairly conservative one. It's not that exotic. It um, more or less takes a player's uh, past few years, weights it for recency, adjusts for the level of competition, and then um, applies that uh, aging curve that um, baseball players in like a large end sample have have shown uh, throughout the course of you know a century of baseball. And that is both the best way to do it because it's really the only way to do it, and obviously a very limited way to do it because uh, every one of these players is an n of one. He will have his own aging curve. And not only will he have his own aging curve, but he'll have his own uh, kind of obstacles. He'll have his own uh, career path. Different things will happen both in his life and in his game and in his body uh, that make it really kind of impossible to assume that anybody is going to follow that um, smooth line up and then the smooth line down that uh, projection models assume. So Judge is a little bit older. As I said, he's 25. But if we're just like thinking about things that have not been done before in baseball from a qualitative sense, this dude looks different than baseball players look. He is enormous. And Giancarlo Stanton hits the ball as far, maybe, or as hard as Judge does. But maybe, you know, you mentioned Bellinger, I guess because he's younger and is already putting up these numbers at that age, could have a career that we remember in a hundred years. But I think we might remember in a hundred years just like what Aaron Judge did in the first half of the 2017 season, just because he is 
hitting balls places and doing things that we just don't see in this sport. Yeah. And there's a tendency, I think, for players who are good at everything to be underrated, um, like Mike Trout, who is 90th percentile at every potential baseball skill. Uh, and to really, but to really fall in love with the guys who are extremely good at one thing. Sure. Uh, and, and Aaron judge is extremely good. He's actually, I mean, he's much more well-rounded than anybody gave him credit for coming up, but he is also unbelievably good at one thing. Like, like, you know, the, the, the anecdote that Tom Verducci told about, uh, Marlins park and how they built the roof specifically because like a bunch of scientists from NASA, or I, I think literally NASA <laughs> had determined that like you, you couldn't hit a baseball to the roof. And uh, let's hire some NASA scientists because this will be a good (laughs) anecdote in someone's feature story a few years down the line. So so anyways, a judge hit the roof. And uh, yeah, I mean, he is a size that we're not used to. But I mean, really, he is a power that we're not used to. And the crazy thing about him, at least as far as I can tell, is is that he has a fairly short swing for a man his size. I mean, there's a kind of a reason that you don't see a lot of six, eight hitters. It's really hard to hit when you're six, eight. You have a bigger strike zone, but it's also at least uh, according to baseball wisdom, it's hard to, to hit the inside pitch. A lot of these guys have holes on the inside of their swing. Um, and usually if you're 6'8", you're, you, you're much more likely to be funneled into pitching than hitting. Uh, I was just Google image searching pictures of Cody Bellinger and Aaron Judge to you know compare them a little bit. And I was going to make the comment that it's kind of refreshing that uh, you know Judge looks so hulking in the way that you described uh, Josh, and then Bellinger looks kind of normal, but Bellinger is six four <laughs> two ten. So you know only next to Aaron Judge does does Cody Bellinger look like a normal human being. Uh, but can I can I ask one question about? I know we we wanted to touch on this question of. You know whether Judge is like the face of uh, the new face of baseball and why and why and I just wonder like well, you know this has been seems to have been the question and the kind of hot take of the last week or so and like Mike Trout is just sitting there he's twenty five years old like if Mike Trout can't be the consensus face of baseball if everyone is stumbling over themselves to make Aaron Judge that like what what what's going on I have a thought on that before what? Sam jumps in which is that I think you have to be a baseball fan to appreciate. Mike Trout. And Sam was alluding to this before. He's such a well-rounded player. And if you watch him every day, then I think you can understand why he's so wonderful. And also, if you understand the kind of history and context of the game, Aaron Judge transcends his sport because man hit ball far. Like You don't need to know anything about baseball uh, or the nuances of the game to appreciate what he does. And I think from a marketing perspective, if you're an advertiser, there's something very, you know, compelling about that. Yeah, Mike Trout is uh, is intentionally boring, and not not even really in the way that Derek Jeter is boring. Uh, Mike Trout just has no guile. He he is a kid who says neato, and he uh, he was that when he came up. It's part of what made him uh, fit into the game so quickly. Uh, and so effortlessly, and it's one of the reasons. I mean, I've written, I've, I've said this before, but the most amazing thing about Mike Trout is that nobody hates him, and it's hard to be the face of baseball if you're that, I guess, in a sense, unobjectionable. Um, and so I don't think that it's like a matter of not trying to make Trout famous. He's just like, you know, there's a combination of his style of play, the the place he plays doesn't really help him, the, the, specifically the park and the fact that he's been on losing teams. Um, and the the way that he has this, uh, you know, the way that he communicates with the public, that just makes it 
seem like it's neither going to happen nor what he particularly wants to happen. Now, the question with Judge is interesting. And, you know, the pro case for him is pretty obvious. He plays in New York. Uh, the Yankees are about to be really good again. And like you say, there's just something like very simple and very obvious about his greatness. Uh, and uh, he also seems like, you know, he's got a clean nose and everybody likes him. So I won't, um, uh, just to play devil's advocate, I think that the con case comes down to maybe two things. One, and this is just a theory that I have had for a long time, but I believe home runs are actually very bad highlights, uh, partly because there's when you see a home run in a highlight, there's no suspense. You see the swing. You know it's a highlight. So you know it's a home run Like as soon as he hits it. I, like When I think about Derek Jeter, previous face of the game, his highlights. Not the best like player the in baseball, high- by the way, Jody. So you don't need to be the best to be the face of baseball. Oh, for sure. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so uh, Jeter is, uh, you know, has some signature highlights and they're all they're all contained on screen in one shot. So you have the flip, <laughs> you have the dot, the dot, you know, the running into the stands to catch that ball. You have the jump throws, things like that. And uh, I I sort of just feel like judges highlights are going to be. Um, you know, I don't know. It's like, it's not Curry hitting a three and it's not, uh, Jordan doing a dunk and it's not somebody, you know, hitting an open hole in a football play. I don't know. Whatever, whatever football is or is called. Uh, so I, I will, I worry a little bit about that. Um, Sam Miller writes about baseball for ESPN. He's also the author of the only rule is it has to work now out in paperback. Thank you for your very weird home run take, Sam. I had not heard that one before. Always a pleasure. (laughs) You're welcome. Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. We became brothers that day when you did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. All right. Last month, ESPN launched 30 for 30 podcasts, an audio-based extension of the 30 for 30 TV documentary series. Three episodes have been released as of the time we're recording this. There will be two more in this first season. Those will be published this Tuesday, July 18th, and the following Tuesday, July 25th. The subjects covered thus far are Reebok's Dan and Dave ad campaign in the run-up to the 1992 Olympics and the aftermath for the decathletes involved. Uh, The Red Sox fans who launched the chant Yankees Suck were the uh, subject of another episode, and a group of amateur women who made a trek to the North Pole in 1997. The episode launching this week, called A Queen of Sorts, is about the best poker player in the world, Phil Ivey, and Kelly's son, the gambler who helped him cheat, or maybe not cheat, it's complicated, uh, casinos out of millions of dollars by devising a system to win at the game of Baccarat. Let's listen to a clip. I could not have come up with a better scenario than a Chinese woman who was known as a degenerate gambler, who had gone to jail for unpaid markers, and a guy who is known to be super wealthy and known to be a degenerate craps player in sports better. I couldn't have done any better. I mean, I can't imagine a better combination than that. 
I mean, maybe if it was Kelly and Yao Ming or something. Joining us now is a woman who is not known as a degenerate gambler, as far as I know. Uh, Rose Eveleth is a producer for 30 for 30 podcasts and was the primary reporter on the Phil Ivey, Kelly Sun episode. Hey, Rose. Hi. I was so uh, happy to see that this was on your initial <laughs> list because I have been really fascinated with this story for a couple of years. I've tried to assign and failed to get assigned pieces <laughs> on it for Slate. Um, this was such an interesting story when it came out a few years ago, and you guys did a really great job of illuminating it. How did you uh, get on this piece, and why did you think it would be uh, a good one as an audio doc? Um, so I had been reading about Phil and this case, and in a lot of the stories that I was reading, I kept noticing that they would reference this woman, this sort of mysterious accomplice, this woman who no one really ever talked about. And that always interests me anytime there's a mysterious accomplice of any kind, but particularly <laughs> if it's a woman. Um, and so I started looking into Kelly and her, and I thought her story was so interesting because she has kind of been the unsung sort of mastermind here. Everyone focuses on Phil, um, and she has a really interesting backstory. And I started sort of reading about her. And I think, you know, to me, anytime you can take a story, and this is kind of the 30 for 30 thing, is you take a story where people think they kind of know what the thing is, and you tell them that actually there's this whole other part of the story they maybe don't know about. Um, and I got to actually go visit her in Vegas, and she's really funny. And uh, I just thought it was a really interesting kind of unknown side of this tale that I think a lot of particularly poker people and sort of gambling people might know about. Uh, Rose, explain what the scheme was here um, and what the roles of Phil Ivey and Kelly's son were and what the technique was that they used to take uh, a bunch of casinos for millions of dollars. So the basic premise is something called edge sorting. Um, cards are printed on these huge sheets. They are then cut into smaller cards. And sometimes they're not cut exactly evenly. So on one side of the card, it might be cut off at a slightly different place than on the other side of the card. And if you can figure out a way to turn the cards so that the valuable ones are turned with that edge asymmetry one way and the non-valuable ones are turned with the edge asymmetry the other way, you can then recognize those cards when they come back out. Um, edge sorting has been used in all sorts of games for a really long time. The the genius thing that Kelly came up with is using it on this game called Mini Baccarat, which the players never actually touched the cards. So she had to convince the dealer to actually turn these cards for her in the way that she needs. And Phil's role is to be Phil Ivey sitting at the table and to wire, you know, millions of dollars and to also be the kind of person that a dealer has a really hard time saying no to when they start asking for these kinds of weird things. Yeah, you had they had to get the casino basically to set its own trap. They just asked yeah. a series of questions. They you know, asked for an Asian dealer. They asked, can we use a new set of cards? And it's just really, really clever to get anyone to like <laughs> devise, you know, to, you know, create the conditions for their own demise, essentially. Yeah. I mean, there's an element of psychological warfare here as much <laughs> as there is a sort of card hack, uh, which I think is one of the more fascinating parts of this. Um, yeah. I mean, when you step back and someone, you know, people do this in the piece, but when you just step back and say, wait a minute, let's list all of the things that these, uh, these two got the casino to do 
to themselves without touching the cards, just as requests and all of the sort of psychological work that went into priming them to be able to do that. Uh, that's the really sort of dastardly and clever and sort of intriguing part of this whole scheme. And yeah, it is one of those things where when you list everything, people are like, wait, how is this possible? Yeah. <laughs> how did they possibly get away with this? Well, Phil Ivey was known, um, you know, we heard it in the clip as someone who, when he's not playing poker, just gave casinos his money by, you know, not being smart about playing craps or, you know, whatever other games that he did. And so he'd cultivated this image over years as someone that casinos wanted to cater to. It's just really bizarre to have someone who's so clever and, you know, accomplished in one casino based, you know, you know, often luck based sport and then in everything else is just such a degenerate and in this case well, he was able to use that image about this job. <laughs> um i think that phil ivy has done a very good job of making people think that that is the case i think that phil ivy is always playing at an advantage ah. i think that phil ivy has worked out a various sets of loss rebate schemes that are um complicated but i this think is effective. the sequel Yes. Um, I think that um, Phil Ivy never walks into a casino to lose money. I think that he has done a really good job of making it seem that way. There's a really great moment in the court case. Um, one of the fun things that I got to do in reporting this was read through um, all of the court transcripts from the Crockford's case. And there's a really great moment where um, the lawyer tries to convince Phil that he's actually lost money at Crockford's, but he's reading the spreadsheet wrong. And Phil's like, no, you actually are wrong. I've won money at Crockford's on the whole. Um, but I think that Phil has done a very genius job of making people think that that is the case, that he comes into these casinos. And yes, he's very good at poker, but he'll blow all this money at craps and all this money at Baccarat. I think that there's a lot more going on beneath the surface there. I actually don't think Phil's losing all that money. Uh, well, thank you for correcting my misapprehension. <laughs> now I feel really dumb, but that makes a lot more sense. Um, no, I mean, he's playing it up. He's cultivating yeah, it. Right. That's mean, his, yeah, right. He wants you to think that. Yeah. So one thing that I found interesting in thinking about this series as a whole is what makes a good sports audio documentary as compared to something that you would um, want to watch on television or in a movie theater. And this Phil Ivey, Kelly Sun story, you described it really ably, and it's described well in um, the podcast, Rose, this edge sorting technique. But I also just couldn't help feeling like I wanted to be seeing it on a screen in front of me as it was being described, it seemed like it would have been a lot easier to understand. Um, how do you feel about that critique? I mean, it, it probably would have been easier to show you edge sorting. That said, a lot of people in the casino business will not go on camera. Um, <laughs> it was very difficult to even get them to go on mic. Um, Kelly would rather you not know what she looks like. Richard Munchkin only agreed to do this. Um, not his real name. Using a fake name, right? Not his real name. He would not have gone on camera. So I think there's that element of... Um, of sort of just literally access in this particular case. I think also, you know, to me, there's something really intimate about an audio form where you can really get to know these people. Um, I also think that, you know, in this case, there is surveillance footage of what they did. I've seen it, but it can't be shared. Um, we couldn't have used any of the footage. There was no footage, really, to yeah, use. Yeah, I mean, think about all the cheesy cutaways of, like, <laughs> random casinos or, like, hands throwing <laughs> chips in slow motion onto, like, a felt table that we would have had to, that you would have to use if you were doing this as a video and instead you know what we're hoping is that when we talk about a back room at crockford's we can kind of take you there uh with audio and not have to do some of those uh those hacky things
things that sometimes you have to do in video when you don't have have the footage. We would have had to do some reenactments that were like, oh, yeah. probably pretty awful. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I'm convinced. The, but no, we did struggle a lot with trying to, and we did streamline it considerably, the the scheme. I mean, the scheme is very complicated. There are like seven requests that are all hinged on each other, Rube Goldberg style. And we really, tr- you know, worked a lot um, to try and just come, you know, narrow it down in a, in a way that is honest to the sort of hard work that they were doing, but is also hopefully understandable for people to get, you know, okay, they asked for X, Y, and Z, and it helped them in in these in these ways. The episode that really struck me as being perfectly suited to the medium was another one that you uh, worked on, Rose, which was about the group of uh, amateur women who went to the North Pole in 1997. And we have a clip from that um, that I'd like to play. We were skating along and I'm behind Claire and I could feel myself getting frightened. The ice is, is undulating, so it's bouncing. And Claire was in front of me and her foot broke through the ice. And I knew I was going to go in. So I just tried to ski as fast as I could. But I I felt my skis go in. And as my skis went in and I went down, it was very fast, but it felt like it was slow motion. And I just felt sick. That's some really great tape. And it really sets, (laughs) sets the scene really well. Yeah, Anne's a great, great talk. I'm waiting. Any feature film people call me. I'm waiting for the Anne Daniels movie. The Mother yeah, of Triplets, as is uh, triplets, discussed many yeah. times in the in the doc. What was um, the genesis of that piece? And um, again, did it seem as sort of suited to audio um, as it as it sounded? Yeah, I mean, so I have this book at my desk of um, women's firsts, and it's literally just a bullet pointed list. It's like 300 pages of just like first women to do anything. Um, And so sometimes I just open it and scroll through it. And for some reason, the 1997 McVitie's Penguin Polar Relay like stuck out to me as a weird name. And so I started looking into it. um, And there wasn't much coverage of it in the US. um, But there was this story from the New York Times, and it talked about their like training regimen on Dartmoor. And they were these average women who were you know, pulling tires around and trying to do all this stuff. And I just thought it was so interesting. And I started calling them, you know, and you do all this like pre-reporting before you start the piece. And every time I would call one of these women, they were just so delightful. Um, and you could just tell they were going to be good tape. Um, we have a little bit of archival from the ice that we, you can hear in the piece. Yeah. But again, there was just not, you know, only one or two of them brought up video cameras. There really wasn't, you know, again, we would have to do probably cheesy reenactments of things that happened. Um, and it just felt like, you know, they were going to give me such good tape and we could use sort of a really great sound design. We have this great composer who's helping us and he really made it sound like ice, you know? Yeah, there were two things. I mean, one, as Rose alluded to, just and you shouldn't over <laughs> overlook this, like a bunch of characters with charming accents, you know, and the ability to just kind of like have all their voices swirling together, even if we don't at, at, at any given moment know exactly who it is. I mean, that was kind of the whole point of this effort was it was a real sort of group of people who got themselves into this. And so I thought, and so from the beginning, we just liked the idea of sort of going out onto the ice in a way and just being there with all these women and having their, their charming British accents sort of fill our ears. But then also, um, 
Ryan Ross Smith, who did co- composition and sound design for this, you know, we talked from the jump about trying to like create a sonic world in this episode. And we even, because the characters do this, it's probably my favorite tape in it. Talk about the ice as a character and talk about the, the way the ice can be your friend in one moment and then turn against you in the other. And so Ryan composed a theme for the ice that, you know, there's a good ice theme and a bad ice <laughs> theme and it can, and it can change on you as, as people start to fall in or things go bad. So, you know, that just kind of, I think of all the episodes this season, it's the one where we kind of like tried to make the Sonic world, uh, you know, a protagonist in this piece. Yeah. I thought that, um, as you said, the different voices really played well together. And with some exceptions as a listener, it didn't necessarily matter if, if you knew who was talking at a particular time. Um, they're all kind of on the same quest and as you said you know it could you you could let the whole thing wash over you in the yeah. Phil Ivy Kelly Sun piece it was a little bit more challenging as a listener to keep track of the cast of characters there were a bunch of different folks kind of chiming in at various points and you wanted to know more who is who is this person so i you know knowing knowing as a writer how challenging it is to um you know keep different characters straight and not confuse the reader i'm sure it's you know as much of a challenge if not greater in doing it in this format one of the things that i was trying to play with a little bit um in the piece was like to make certain moments feel a little bit like card tricks like you're not quite sure what's happening um and you know we tried to play with this oceans 11 sort of motif that kind of comes up a couple of times in the piece um and to me you know a lot of a lot of this story is fun and and you know for me i'm kind of like and this is just sort of my aesthetic. Like I tend to lean more towards like, it's okay if you don't really know what's going on as long as you kind of get the gist and like feel the feeling that I want you to feel. Um, and so I think, you know, we, I at least was trying to kind of pull a couple of fast ones on you where you think you know who you're talking to and then it's somebody else. And mm. so I'm, I'm glad you were confused. That was what I was going for. <laughs> <laughs> I was also confused by Phil Ivey's, uh, you know, the what he was uh setting up at casinos, making me think that he lost. So maybe I'm just an easily confused person. So you should talk to someone who's who's (laughs) I have a couple of card tricks for you then. (laughs) Exactly. Um, We should go, we should, you should come over for poker sometime. (laughs) Would be happy to lose, uh, lose money to you guys. I wanted to end, thought the, we've been talking about great pieces of tape. The best piece of tape I thought in the episodes that I've listened to so far was in the first episode, the Dan and Dave episode, I'd be curious to know after we play the clip if um, you thought it was as good as I thought it was when I was listening to it. Let's I listen. think I know what you're going to play. Let's, Who should we take bets? Let's hear it. Yeah, we were actively hoping that something bad would happen. I, I don't know. I don't know how else to put it. I, I'd like to lie and say no, it didn't make a difference, but it made a difference, of course. The truth is, we were just fucking happy. I mean, what, what are you What are you going to say? It was one of those moments where you feel so good, you get a little lightheaded. (laughs) It's the first moment in time that I can ever remember um, taking pleasure in somebody else's pain. This is a Nike executive talking about how happy he was when the Reebok uh, ad campaign for Dan O'Brien and Dave Johnson fell apart at the 92 Olympic trials. What an an amazing moment when an interview subject gives you that. 
Yeah. And I mean, we thought a little bit about, you know, are we selling this guy out by including that piece of tape? But he's clearly with, the you know, 25 years of distance. He has a sort of you can hear it in his voice. He's you know, he, there's he's I don't think he comes off like a jerk there. I think he's he's being honest and he's kind of laughing. Um, but I mean, I really like that piece of tape as a piece of tape, but I also like it as a sort of uh, sub theme to the whole Dan and Dave story, which is just it's another moment in, you know, this decades long attempt by Reebok to try and catch Nike in the sneaker wars. And, you know, when you step back and you look at it and you're like, oh, they thought they were going to catch Nike in 1992. Yeah, there is a Roadrunner and Coyote, Coyote element <laughs> yeah, to that. Absolutely. And of course it blew up in their face. And, you know, it's, and, 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 you know, it was the year of the dream team and they thought they were going to take two decathletes and finally catch Nike. So, um, so that's like a nice moment where, you know, you tell the story of these two guys in this ad campaign, but then you kind of have this larger context as well. All right. The last uh, episode is July 25th, uh, Tuesday. And then we've got, the Phil Ivey and Kelly Sun episode of Queen of Sorts coming out this Tuesday, July 18th. This is just the first season, so we look forward to more seasons to come. Uh, Rose Aveleth, producer and reporter for 30 for 30 Podcasts, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Now it is time for Afterballs. And since we just talked about Baccarat, Jody, and I have learned how to pronounce Baccarat for this podcast. I've noticed. You've been showing w- it off. <laughs> I just want to say Baccarat as much as possible. Do you know who the most famous Baccarat player is in history? Uh, probably Phil Ivey. No, James <laughs> Bond. James Bond? I, I was going to go with James Bond's opponent. Oh, Yeah. It's Le Chiffre. Yeah, is it the opening scene of Casino Royale or something? <laughs> yeah, so in the book um, by Ian Fleming, Le Chiffre is this like awesome Baccarat player, and MI6 sends James Bond to uh, take him out because he's the only one who can compete with his amazing skills. Yeah. But I, I was looking at um, – Wikipedia, and there's the 1967 parody Casino Royale that I haven't seen. Um, and he's played by Orson Welles hmm. in that <laughs> one. And the description just made me extremely excited to cue this up. It says, uh, Le Chiffre, who again is played by Orson Welles, encounters Baccarat master Evelyn Trimble, who's been recruited by Bond to stop Le Chiffre from raising whatever some of money he needs. Le Chiffre attempts to distract Trimble by performing elaborate magic tricks, but fails to prevent Trimble from winning. I'm, so I'm just picturing Orson Welles with like a giant flower in his lapel and uh, 
it it probably will not live up to my uh, image of what these magic tricks might be. All right, Jody, what is your le chiffre? <laughs> my uh, le chiffre is about what is probably my least favorite thing in sports other than Joe Carter's home run in the 1993 World Series. Uh, yesterday, as the men's final was wrapping up, I was thinking about how impressive Roger Federer's performance was and how lucky we are to witness his great his greatness. But I also kind of felt this growing sense of unease because this is something that happens at the end of every big tennis match that I watch, which is the anticipation that as soon as the match is over, after one player drops to his or her knees in triumph, both the winner and the loser have to give this on-camera, on-the-court, insta-interview, breaking down what just happened. And I truly hate this practice, and I don't know why it exists in tennis and tennis only. I mean... You know, watching tennis is incredibly satisfying because it's physically and mentally challenging. And I would say maybe the most mentally challenging sport there is. And the postgame interview is kind of the flip side of that. You watch someone who's completely wiped out mentally and physically have to find the words and the grace in front of a huge audience. And it's like, haven't we asked enough of you by performing in this way? And now all of a sudden we have to make you talk. And we don't do this in other sports. You know, basketball players get to just like throw their mouth guard out and storm off the court. Uh, baseball pitchers don't like have someone come up into their face after they've given up a home run to say, lose the 1993 world series. But in tennis, we do this and sometimes it's great. They show grace and class. And sometimes it's weird and funny. I think Stan Marinka jokingly called Federer an asshole in a post game remark earlier this year, but usually it's really cringe inducing for me. And I would recommend that people go watch the most painful example of this, which is Andy Murray, the great British hope who was forced to speak immediately after losing the 2012 Wimbledon final to Roger Federer. And it is awful and heartbreaking. Uh, Wait, I think we need to put in a clip uh, from that, uh, Jody. You can't. uh... Yeah, I I sent it. Right. I'm going to try this and it's not going to be easy. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So you can hear that his voice is cracking as they hand him the the microphone. And that's the other thing is the the reporter doesn't ask him a question. She asks him a question and hands him the microphone like he's a stand-up comic or like he's giving a, a toast at a wedding. And then he has to just stand there in the middle of the court and try and find the words all alone. And he starts to cry. He doubles over. He can't get it going. You can hear it in his voice. You can hear it in his voice. I'm choking up. And like, you know, it's it's brutal. And obviously, like... I was crying when I was watching this. The crowd is like cheering him on and, 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 and egging him along. And then the camera like cuts to Roger Federer, who's just like standing there holding the first place trophy. And it's like, you know, oh, I did this to this guy. Like I'm responsible for this moment. So I don't know. I am not a fan of this. I feel like the loser in tennis should just be hope, should just be able to smash their racket and jog off the court. And then they can have a press conference later and we should just let the winner have, have their moment. Well argued. Strong disagree, but well argued. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me how you feel about that now that we've reached the end of this emotionally taxing podcast. Oh, Jody, 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 Jody. Josh, what is your le chief? All right, Jody, I've got a pitch for you. So how serious is 30 for 30 about um, the story needing to have taken place during ESPN's lifespan? Is that like a hard... like? You definitely have to have been since like 1979 or whatever it is. No, we're actually looking for stories where all the characters are dead. There was nothing on TV or audio. That's really easy to make something out of. All right. No, there's there's some video here. There's some video here. Okay. All right. Listen up. 
So let me set the scene for you. It's August 4th, 1975. Uh-huh. A terrorist group affiliated with the Japanese Red Army takes 52 hostages, including five Americans. Well, all of them were released, so forget about the hostages. This has nothing to do with the hostages. I was just trying to get your attention. What mm-hmm. really happened on August 4th, 1975, was the Topps Chewing Gum Incorporated, purveyor of fine baseball card products, announced the launch of the Joe Garagiola Bazooka Big League Bubblegum Blowing Championship, a competition among major leaguers to see, as you might have guessed, who could blow the largest bubble out of a wad of chewing gum. Uh, The Los Angeles Times described it thusly. The contest begins this month. Each team in the National and American Leagues will determine an individual champion who will advance to the league final by mid-September. The whole mess climaxes during the World Series when the big blow will be nationally televised. The winner will receive $1,000 plus a case of bubble gum. The stakes, Jody, they could not be Mm -hmm. higher. But wait, there's more. A specially designed set of calipers will be used to measure the bubbles. Competitors will be given 15 minutes to condition the gum. Then we'll have three tries to come up with their best bubble. So many great characters in this story. You've got a specially designed set of calipers, which really every documentary needs. Per the website of the Baseball Hall of Fame, a sticky situation came up during the Cubs competition when George Mitterwald filed an official protest. The Cubs catcher claimed he had blown the largest bubble, but the contest judge failed to position the official calipers in time. There's controversy. Now, let me take you to the Mm -hmm. final. After Mm -hmm. a series of blow-offs, we have Johnny Oates of the Phillies, Kurt Bavacqua of the Brewers. This is televised before Game 3 of the World Series. Let's listen to a clip. You bet last. Kurt, you're up, okay? So, go. Isn't this great tape, Jody? Mmm. Well, you, we can recreate the sound of the chewing, <laughs> is what I'm really thinking <laughs> said, about. Don't get too close to break. They're currently blowing bubbles? They're currently blowing yeah, bubbles. Isn't this great? Uh-huh. This may not be official. Uh-huh. <laughs> I don't know how that's what's the, what's the facial hair situation time. here. That's it. How much you got? 13. You gotta be kidding me. <laughs> what are your thoughts, Jenny? <laughs> Was that the first use ever of you gotta be kidding me by a sports announcer? It's remarkable. It very well could be. Uh, I think we could make that argument. So you could hear uh, like a, the flash bulbs popping. It's a dynamic mm-hmm. scene. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is greenlit. The budget's been approved. Just tell me where you need to fly to. So Kurt Bavakwa won the championship. He blew an 18 and a quarter inch bubble uh, in the finals. And just to validate the importance of this event, um, I was just reading that from the Baseball Hall of Fame website. The Hall of Fame has an exhibit on the bazooka bubblegum blowing competition. Um, you can find it in Cooperstown. It's called Whole New Ball Game. I'm sure attendance is spiking. What year was this? This was 1975. Uh, okay, so can you just give me the what if I told you tagline for this? Because we need that every time we, we, we approve a 30 for 30. Wait, wait, I've got it. Okay. <laughs> what if I told you that it took 15 minutes to condition the gum properly, and then you had three tries to come up with your best bubble? Boom. Roll the music and we're into it. 
That is our show for today. Thank you, Jody Avergan, for filling in. Our producer is Patrick Fort, and our intern is Max Cohen. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. You should also check out Working, Slate's weekly podcast about what people do all day. This season is set in Detroit, and so far, Jacob Brogan has talked to a hair care entrepreneur, an urban farmer, an automotive battery engineer, and the mayor's chief of staff. For the latest episodes, which post each Sunday, go to slate.com slash working. I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening.